Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to get to medical conferences, but no one knows the study leave code, no one will cover your shift, you don't like online learning, and anyway, you actually thought the BTS was an Asian boy band. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners, to part one of the unofficial BTS Winter Conference 2021 podcast extravaganza. If you're not a regular listener of the show, we are the solution to your burning desire to keep up to date with the evidence and practice changing medical literature, whilst also having to live a life, go to work, eat, sleep, breathe, and uh, perhaps sit daydreaming out the window wondering how to tell the difference between mist, fog, and smog. That's right, we do regular roundups of the literature along with specialist interviews and important topics such as COVID and climate. Today, however, we are covering the international best-selling respiratory conference, the BTS Winter Meeting. Before we start, quick shout out to HEE and St George's Healthcare for a grant which is keeping us rolling and keeping you informed. Thank you very much. I am Dr Barnaby Hirons, Respiratory Registrar and Research Fellow. And I'm Dr. Katia Florman, IMT3 and aspiring respiratory trainee. So we've split the BTS extravaganza into two episodes. First, we cover all things asthma, COPD and cough. Basically, it's airways disease. And look out for part two and we'll cover infections, mycobacterium, plural and air pollution. By we, it is mainly our BTS minions speaking about what they have seen or presented at the conference. Um, minions, Barney? Are you referring to the incredible professors, consultants, researchers, and specialist trainees we have lined up? Um, (laughs) look, okay. They are highly experienced and intellectual minions who are also excellent educators. But minions nonetheless. Gosh, okay. We might have to agree to disagree on that one. Anyway, today we have professors John Hurst on COPD exacerbations, Lorcan McGarvey on major cough developments, and Simon Kuya on asthma risk scoring. We also have respiratory trainees Becky DeCruz, Vicky Taylor, and Ryan Robinson on high flow treatment in COPD, risks and causes of COPD, and inhaler recycling. Absolutely marvellous, you lucky, lucky listeners. <laughs> before, we, before we start, Katya, um, we asked all our presenters for a fun fact about themselves. Many managed to actually avoid it when we started recording, but I guess it'd only be fair if we give one too. Um, do you want to? Do you want to kick us off? What's yours? Sure. I probably the a lesser known fact about me is that even though I am a doctor, obviously, and like being on my feet a lot of the time, I have a real um, propensity to faint, and have done it many times. The first time was when I did work experience and walked into an ENT surgery halfway through and I thought it might be a one-off. But no, I think I fainted on probably every job that I've had. So um, Really? Oh, wow. Amazing. (laughs) You need to eat more salt. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. This would be really awkward if you faint suddenly. I mean, I'm not expecting it, but faint on camera. I'd be like, oh, Katia? Katia? (laughs) Oh dear. Well, there we go. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Fun fact. Um, go on. What's was, yours then, Barney? <laughs> well, I was thinking about this. I was like, what haven't I shared on journal spotting so far? Most of them have already been shared. But I, I don't think I've ever spoke about how when I was um, a while, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, when I was, but when I was certainly old enough to know better, um, I was trying to get dreadlocks whilst in Africa, but I was tricked into getting braids. So that's right. I had braids for a while. Long black wow. braids with extra string coming down to my shoulders. Um, and yes, oh. there are photos. No, you can't see them, but everybody at my wedding saw them. You had them for your wedding. Oh, you know, they, no. they, they showed the photos. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> did you have beads on the end? That's the yeah. key. Yeah, well, yeah, you did. Beads. Oh, God. Like black beads. Different colours. Yeah. Oh, no, they're all black, actually. You know, just, you know, <laughs> I kept it classy, but there we go. I look okay. terrible. We need to put that on the Jam Spotting website. I think your bio is still missing a photo, isn't it? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Anyway, as always, listeners, please subscribe to the podcast, rate us on Apple, follow us on Twitter, and share us with all your social media or WhatsApp buddies who might be interested. 
spread the channel spotting jam. Come on. Right then, let's crack on with the show. Listeners, you're in, in for a treat. We have Dr. Lorca McGarvey. He's a, a cough expert from Belfast who both presented and was present at the uh, the cough symposium yesterday. And he's going to give us his, his key updates from that session. Um, great to have you with us, Lorcan. Well, thank you very much, uh, Barney. Yeah, Lorcan McGarvey is my name. I'm a chest specialist based in Belfast. I'm professor of respiratory medicine at Queen's University, Belfast. And I suppose if there's a, a fact about me, it, it's that I've been working in this field for uh, more than 25 years. And, and look, this field has changed enormously. And, and I think what we uh, saw at the British Thoracic Society uh, just over these past few days highlights just that. So many of you listening, of course, will appreciate that cough is a clinical problem. And, uh, you know, for a long time, we thought of it as just a symptom. We also thought that really we've got to go investigating conditions like asthma and reflux and upper airway cough conditions. And, you know, and that remains to be absolutely the appropriate way to, to evaluate patients with chronic cough. However, many patients, despite evaluation, despite trials of therapy, remain uncontrolled. And we call those patients refractory or unexplained chronic cough. And our understanding of that patient group has changed enormously. And perhaps more importantly, there are opportunities for us to better understand the extent of the problem uh, worldwide, to understand the uh, best way to measure and assess the burden of this clinical condition. And I'm going to say a little bit as well about some of the exciting new developments in terms of therapy. The first poster that struck me that was important was one looking at prevalence, not in the hospital setting, not in primary care, but rather in a general population setting. And this was undertaken by some a research group based in Germany, uh, where they used data from the German National Health and Wellbeing Survey. This is about 15,000 otherwise healthy general population from, from Germany. And they asked them a pretty simple question. Have you had cough every day for more than eight weeks in the last year? Of the 15,000 patients they surveyed, about 5% answered positive to that question. So giving us a sense of uh, general population prevalence of about 5%. I'll come back to that in a minute. But what was important, they extended this information a little bit further by looking at the burden and impact on this general population in those with chronic cough. And they found that they were more likely to have anxiety, more likely to have depression, more likely to utilize healthcare resources. And interestingly, they were likely as well to have more impairment of work productivity, perhaps from less, you know, lost days at work. We're not really sure of the detail, but I think what this tells us is that cough is more than just a symptom. It is, it impacts significantly on patients' lives. The the figure of 5% is actually pretty much in keeping with the other data we have from around the world. Indeed, it's actually a little bit lower. We generally think from a recently published uh, pulled meta-analysis of data from around the world, that there's probably a prevalence of about 9% in the general population. So it's in the same ballpark, but it tells us that chronic cough is a real issue. Now, if you see patients in your primary care setting, or if you're a registrar and you attend a cough clinic or a general clinic, you'll start to realize the impact of patients, uh, of chronic cough on patients' lives. And there are ways that we can measure and assess this. And the group from King's College, for example, have developed a lot of patient-reported outcome measures. And one of the posters presented by Katie Radigan, who works with Surinder Burring, one of the leading researchers in this area, looked at a, a rating scale that again started to give us a handle on how we assess and measure and how we should assess and measure cough in those patients we see at clinic. Because the burden is immense. And another very nice poster presented by Peter Cho, who's just uh, been working along with Sunder Burring for quite some time. He looked at a really important uh, side effect that patients report, namely urinary incontinence. Now, we don't often ask these patients directly 
do you have urinary incontinence, but actually the prevalence is very high. And the study that Peter told us was an online survey undertaken uh, of ladies who had reported stress urinary incontinence. And quite unbelievably, about 15% of those patients reported chronic cough, and almost three quarters of them reported that cough was a direct cause of their stress urinary incontinence. So again, highlighting just how impactful, highlighting again the burden of uncontrolled chronic cough. And we certainly don't as chest physicians, I think, directly ask our patients about that question and that problem. And I think it's to do with a certain degree of embarrassment. And as well as that, we wonder, do our uh, gynae and urology colleagues also look to reach out to chest physicians to help them with their patients with chronic cough? So I think this poster highlighted this important issue and there's clearly a lot more work that needs to be done. But one area in the final three posters I'm going to tell you about really center on, I guess, the, the fact that cough is now in prime time. And it's in prime time because, as I say, we now understand this condition not just as a symptom, but as a distinct clinical disease entity characterized by what we call cough hypersensitivity. And this cough hypersensitivity syndrome we feel is due to abnormal sensory neural function. Patients often report triggering of cough to relatively innocuous things such as talking or laughing or change in air temperature or exposure to food odors or perfumes or aerosols suggesting this hypersensitivity. And we've become very interested now in targeting the sensory nerves and one receptor that appears to be very important is a purine receptor known as a P2X3 receptor. This is actually activated by a signaling molecule well known to all of you called ATP. ATP is actually released, in fact, we call it an alarm and it's released in stress situations. We think from epithelial cells in the airway. So inflammatory responses in the airway, uh, mechanical activation of the airway, um, uh, physical irritation of the airway, all will release ATP. We think ATP activates these purine receptors and contributes then to this hypersensitive state. There has been a drug developed called Jefepixent. Jefepixent blocks this receptor. And many of us have been involved in a number, of, in a lot of the development of this compound, which is now just completed two large phase three clinical studies, which are just about to be published. And I think showed very encouraging results with this compound Jefepixent. There were three papers presented at BTS which looked at these two large phase three studies. One was called COF1, one was called COF2. One looked at the uh, the the uh, impact of 45 milligrams twice daily of Jefepixent compared to 15 milligrams twice daily of Jefepixent compared to placebo at 12 weeks and in cough one and 24 weeks in cough two in about 2000 patients, so a large study. And there was clear evidence that uh, Jefepixent 45 milligrams twice daily showed improvements, not just in cough frequency measured by a cough monitor, but also some of the very important patient reported outcome scales. And what I was able to show in one of the posters I presented was that the population recruited to those studies by and large had uncontrolled chronic cough with about two thirds having refractory chronic cough, i.e. their cough had not responded to treatment for coexistent asthma or reflux or upper airway cough syndrome and about two thirds had uh, unexplained chronic cough, so no clear cause for their cough at all. And in the second study, we were able to see that if we studied these patients beyond 12 and 24 weeks and right out for one year, 52 weeks, the benefits of Jefepixin 45 milligrams BD were sustained when uh, evaluated using patient reported outcome. And the very final study was presented by Jackie Smith uh, looking at a pulled analysis of 24 hour cough recording uh, evidence and again showing sustained 
uh, improvement in 24-hour cough frequency and awake cough frequency in those patients receiving 45 milligrams twice daily of Jefferson. I mean, I think these are really important findings. And there was great interest, I think, in the BTS and all of the findings. But I think what is encouraging, I want to communicate to all of you, is that cough is common, it's important, it's impactful and is uh, burdensome for our patients. We still need to go about a systematic, organized way of evaluating patients with chronic cough. And doing just that can be very helpful. But for those patients that have uh, uncontrolled cough despite that approach, the good news is we do have treatment. So I think there's a lot to be excited about in the in the field of chronic cough. I hope this podcast has uh, interested you and, and enthused you to get involved and, and start to look after those patients with this troublesome symptom. Thank you very much. So we have um, Professor John Hurst with us on the podcast now, and he's going to give a summary of his talk about COPD exacerbations, zero tolerance. Thank you, Cathy. A pleasure to be here. Okay, so this is the unofficial BTS <laughs> podcast, but I guess officially at the BTS, I was speaking about zero tolerance of COPD exacerbation, something very close to my heart, uh, passionate about reducing the impact of COPD exacerbations. And you know, just as a thought experiment, just imagine you're 30 years in the future and that the big problems of COPD have been solved. So uh, maybe we don't have so many exacerbations coming into hospital. Maybe those that we do have have got new drugs to treat them. Uh, and in fact, we're not seeing all the sort of severe COPD that we see now because lung cancer screening programs have been leveraged to diagnose COPD in early stages. So it's a very different uh, picture. Uh, I'm going to be long retired by 2051, but uh, 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 COPD is going to be going to look different. Uh, but the really interesting thing, of course, is that one of those has already happened. Um, and there has been a reduction in hospitalised COPD exacerbations by more than 50% through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and that's as a result of people uh, shielding. And it shows us really, or it shows me, or what I take away from that, is that what we sometimes think is impossible is possible. We just have to think about it uh, in a different way. But if you think where we are now, uh, even with the reduction in exacerbations, the national audit data shows that we are in a bit of a mess, if I'm honest with you, uh, about COPD. Um, more than 50% of people admitted to hospital with a COPD exacerbation. Got no evidence of that uh, if you try and find their spirometry. Uh, and if you look at what happens to them after they're discharged, uh, well, about 20% of them are back within 30 days, about 40% within 90 days. Something's going wrong there, right? And that's all our responsibility to try and fix. And it's not that we haven't got stuff that works. There's a huge number of effective interventions to try and uh, reduce the risk of future exacerbations. Uh, it's just that we're not using them properly. Sometimes we don't ask ourselves which combination of inhalers or different interventions are right for this person uh, at the right time. Uh, and that's something that's within uh, our power to shift. Um, and top of the list actually is triple therapy. And bear with me. By triple therapy, I don't mean inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting beta agonists and long-acting antimuscarinics. That's sometimes called triple therapy. By triple therapy here, I mean smoking cessation support, pulmonary rehab and vaccinations. You know, for, let's get the basics right in COPD. And if we get those basics right, and of course, appropriate use of medicines too, uh, we can really start to uh, change COPD. And you can ask yourself why we're not doing this. Well, I think there's a bit of, uh, what to say, nihilistic tolerance about COPD. It's common, it's always there. You know what, it's not good enough. And I think we need to change that. I think we need to move to a place of zero tolerance of exacerbations. Can you just imagine our friends and colleagues in cardiology tolerating two or three or four myocardial infarctions before they start someone on beta blockers, aspirin, ACE inhibitors, ARB block? We, it's just impossible, isn't it? And yet we tolerate exacerbation after exacerbation after exacerbation. And that would be okay if those exacerbations didn't lead to permanent damage within the lung. But that's not true. They do. Uh, on average, in milder COPD, you lose about 100 mils of lung function with a simple exacerbation. So the argument that I was making at the official BTS, and I'm going to make in this unofficial BTS too, is that we need to move to earlier proactive management of COPD. And if to borrow another specialty's analogy for a second, just think about rheumatoid arthritis. 
By focusing on early active synovitis and going in with biologics, the rheumatologists have successfully prevented the accumulation of deforming arthropathy. Same for inflammatory bowel disease. Why are we not doing that in COPD, you might wonder? Well, because it's difficult to assess the activity of COPD and the question remains about what interventions we put in, but that has to be the model uh, going forward. And that needs science and it needs biology and it needs funding and it needs the brightest trainees to be going into respiratory medicine as they already are, uh, but in greater numbers, because respiratory medicine is a fabulous specialty and a really exciting place to be. And if we do that and we get that right, the future looks very different. But whatever we're doing at the moment, we can do more. We can support smoking cessation. Uh, we can support case finding. Uh, we can optimise people's care using the evidence-based interventions we've got both kinds of triple therapy, uh, I suppose. Uh, and we can use audit to drive quality improvement in the units that we work in. Uh, and if we do that, then we might just make a difference uh, to the millions of people living with COPD in the UK. So I'm going to argue we need to move away from nihilistic tolerance to, to, to zero tolerance of COPD and COPD exacerbations. And I hope you will join me on that journey too. For the average um, SHO on a respiratory ward, do you have any top tips about what they can do within their power to sort of optimise their care for the COPD patients coming with in with exacerbations? That's a great question, uh, Katia. And I think if I said if I have one thing, I would say uh, use every exacerbation as an opportunity to optimise that person's care going forwards. The basics: smoking cessation support rehab and vaccinations it's so important i'm going to say it again smoking cessation vaccines pulmonary rehab and appropriate use of inhalers not just the medicine but think about the device can this person use these devices properly because if not there's no point prescribing them uh, and it's often down to the uh, to the middle grade medics on the ward to 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 do that uh, especially in acute medicine you might be you might be the person who can really make a difference to that person's life give it a go can i ask about lifestyle um, diet, um, exercise, these core things which aren't don't, often didn't get included and things which are very difficult to perhaps fix. Do you have any views on how we can uh, fix those problems in our patients who keep coming in? Uh, that's a great question too, Barney. And I cannot overemphasize uh, the value uh, of pulmonary rehabilitation as a holistic uh, education and exercise intervention. There's a really interesting line in the Cochrane reviews of pulmonary rehab that says, please stop doing any more research about pulmonary rehab. We know it works. Stop it. Go on, do something else. Just get on and do the rehab. Um, you know, you can see that people are fitter at the end of the course. You can measure that if you like. Six minute walk test, incremental shuttle walk, but also have much more uh, confidence managing their own disease because they have the education component too. Nutrition is part of that education, uh, but the relationship between nutritional status uh, at least when measured simply like BMI, an outcomes in COPD is tricky. It's not a straight line, it's a J-shaped curve. And in fact, the people who do worst are our thinnest, cahectic patients, often from the emphysema phenotype. So being aware of that's important, but what's never been shown is whether you can change their nutritional supplementation, uh, change their nutritional status through supplementation, and that translates to outcomes. But nevertheless, uh, intervening on nutrition, important thing to think about in COPD, I think. So now we have Dr. Becky de Cruz, who's a respiratory registrar at the Royal Free Hospital, and she's going to present um, her work that she presented at BTS on Wednesday. Over to you, Becky. Hi, Katia. Thanks so much for inviting me to have a chat about this um, project that I did as part of my PhD work. Um, so I'm a final year respiratory registrar and I'm currently based at the Royal Free Hospital. Um, and I did this research when I was based at St Thomas's. Um, so I have um, a passion for COPD patients and trying to help um, improve their quality of care um, and reduce hospital readmissions and re-exacerbations in this cohort. Um, Kat has asked me for an interesting fact about myself, which I have struggled with, but I suppose an unusual quality in a respiratory registrar is that I absolutely hate sputum and it makes me gag. And if patients want to show me their sputum pods, I have to duck out of view. So the project that I did was a feasibility randomised control trial. So this was not a powered study to look for the effectiveness of an intervention. It was to look to see whether it's practically possible to undertake a proper clinical, randomised clinical trial. I looked at 
nasal high flow or high flow therapy in COPD patients who had been hospitalized with an exacerbation of their COPD. I randomized patients to receive the device um, plus their usual medical care, so antibiotics and steroids, or just usual care alone. Patients were I trained them how to use the device before they went home, so taught them how to set up the equipment. And the settings that I used were reasonably standardised for all of the patients. So I set them up with a temperature of 37 degrees and a flow rate of between 25 to 30 litres a minute. I then went to patients' homes once a week for four weeks and measured a range of patient-reported physiological and clinical outcomes So those included things like symptom questionnaires, evaluating their health-related quality of life, um, looking at simple physiology like their respiratory rates, their oxygen saturations and their heart rate, as well as as more advanced physiological measurements, which such as neural respiratory drive, which we measure using a parasternal electromyography and also spirometry and a way of measuring hyperinflation, which is inspiratory capacity. And also as part of the feasibility study, I interviewed patients who were randomised to the intervention arm to see how they got on with the device and how how they felt they benefited or not from it. So essentially, we I was able to recruit um, just 18 patients in total. And unfortunately, the study was cut very, very much shorter than I'd have liked to because of the pandemic. So really, the only, the useful data that I got was the feasibility data rather than the clinical data. And we actually found that this did seem to be a feasible study protocol. So patients were adherent to the device and found it comfortable. Um, I changed the flow and the temperature settings in weeks one and two for some of the patients because as they recovered, they felt that the flow rate was too strong for them or the heat was a little bit high. Interestingly, they didn't use the device for that long. So from week one, they used it for sort of nearly three hours, but that had tailed down to close to two hours per 24 hour period by week four. And despite that, even though this wasn't a powered study, we we looked to see if there was any signal that the high flow had any benefit on symptoms. And there was some early signal that it could potentially help with breathlessness, cough and overall COPD symptom burden and potentially also improve hyperinflation as measured with inspiratory capacity. And some of the comments that we had um, during the interviews were that it was really easy to use, it actually had a pleasant sensation, and the symptom that patients most felt that they benefited from was with regards to their sputum clearance. Some of the um, less pleasant effects were that patients were quite worried about having a new device and there was a bit of anxiety relating to if, if it was going to malfunction or not, which there weren't any technical technical difficulties in reality. And also it took a little bit of time to warm up. So essentially we found that it was a feasible study and this is a high risk group of patients who could benefit from this potentially useful intervention. So it's probably worth doing a full randomised clinical trial in the future. And I think just from the perspective of trainees who are getting used to using high flow therapy. So it's useful to know that it's a well tolerated um, intervention. There are lots of data in patients in acute respiratory failure and emerging data in stable and patients recovering from an exacerbation that it's well tolerated. And I suppose as trainees, we should be mindful of monitoring how comfortable it is and adapting flow rate and temperature settings to to help patients adhere to the intervention. That's really useful. That's something we can do um, right now, isn't it? Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Hi, my name's uh, Vicky Taylor. I am one of the respiratory registrars currently at Guy's in St Thomas's Hospital. Um, which I can think of an interesting fact of. I'm currently under siege by a three-year-old demanding hug, so I apologise if there are any interruptions during this. Um, but I attended the BTS meeting yesterday and attended a really interesting symposium entitled COPD Scaling New Heights with three main speakers, one of whom was Prof Hurst, who I think is going to explain his part of the talk himself, which is great, um, but also two other professors, Nadia Hansel, who's based in Baltimore, and Professor Nick Hopkinson, um, who's in London. So the first talk was from Professor Hansel, um, who reflected on etiologies other than smoking for COPD. And I think we all see patients in our clinics with a diagnosis of COPD, but without a particularly significant smoking history, it was really helpful to think about what other contributory factors might be at play. 
So she um, presented a multifactorial model of COPD, including the kind of more commonly cited um, reasons for having COPD other than smoking, like outdoor pollution and passive smoke exposure, um, but also highlighted that even in higher income countries such as the US, indoor pollution can be an issue. Uh, and nutrition may also be a major major contributor. Uh, and these factors can also act synergistically to worsen, worsen outcomes for COPD patients. So in terms of indoor sources of pollution, she names wood burning stove, gas stoves, burning rubbish in, in your garden, and shares her findings that higher particulate matter levels in individual homes over a six month period correlated to worse COPD symptoms, increased use of reliever inhalers and increased hospital visits. She named omega-3 as a potential anti-inflammatory nutrient, which may modify susceptibility to particulate matter, which is really interesting. She also highlighted racial disparities in COPD. And in the studies that she talked about, there was no difference in disease prevalence per se, but outcomes tended to be worse for patients who self-identified as black in the studies with higher symptom scores and lower six-minute walk distances. Uh, lots of food for thought, as I'm sure plenty of these findings translate to our UK population too. So the, the talk to mention was one from Professor Hopkinson uh, and centred on endobronchial interventions, so that's lung volume reduction. So the two main procedures that are available are lung volume reduction surgery, which is a keyhole procedure to remove diseased lung, and endobronchial valve placement, where worst affected areas of the lung are blocked off with a valve during a bronchoscopy procedure. So lung volume reduction surgery has been shown to confer a survival benefit. And since the initial net study, the surgical risks associated with it have decreased with the ability to perform it via a VATS keyhole procedure. So it's estimated that between 5 and 18 percent of patients completing pulmonary rehab for COPD are suitable for at least a focused respiratory view to consider whether they might be eligible for lung volume reduction. And basic criteria to think about include um, COPD with an FEV1 less than 50%, significant shortness of breath despite optimal me medical treatment, people who are non-smokers, and being able to complete a six-minute walk, walk distance of more than 140 metres. So there are efforts afoot to identify potentially eligible patients at the end of a course of pulmonary rehab via a decision tool, and so GPs and other referring clinicians might start to receive these outcomes of the decision tools in the near future, advising a referral to relevant specialists to consider lung volume reduction. So I think the kind of, there was also a really interesting talk from John Hurst, which I've got lots of take home points from, but I'm sure he'll explain all of those. Um, and I guess my main take home points from the talks that I saw are to think more broadly about the factors contributing to COPD severity and that it's not all about smoking status. Um, and don't accept there's nothing more that we can do in severe COPD because there are surgical possibilities in severe disease, including lung volume reduction as well as transplant. We have all the way from Quebec, or is it Quebecois? I'm not sure. We have Simon Couillard, who um, gave some amazing talks on asthma, pheno, and eosinophils, and he made it really clear. And he's going to tell us a bit about what he's been working on and presented at the BTS. Hi, thank you, Barnaby, for this great podcast. And hi, everyone. I hope you're uh, cozy at home in the UK. I know it's quite rainy over there. Over here in Quebec, um, it's already snowed. Um, and thankfully, um, it's melted right afterwards, but we're in for a snowy winter. So my name is Simon Cuillard. I'm, I'm a previous respiratory and research fellow at the University of Oxford between 2019 and 2021. I've just come back to Canada where I'll be setting up my own research program as an associate professor at the University of Sherbrooke. You've never heard about that university, but you've heard about Oxford. So let's just stick with the Oxford brand. Uh, fun fact on me. I did a lot of, I appreciated rowing with you guys in the UK, and um, I hope to be able to do so in the nice little river that's right beside uh, my home later on in life, but not at the moment too busy. I'll be presenting, I'll be talking about a bit of the work we've done and uh, presented at the BTS, and it'll, it'll revolve around two things. First is how we can interpret objective monitoring of inflammation in asthma, and second, is how we can use that knowledge to predict asthma attacks and we hope prevent them. So around the first pole of communication, which basically um, encompasses our, um, our study that we, that we published in the Blue Journal, pheno non-suppression identifies cor corticosteroid resistant type two singling in severe asthma. So that's a mouthful. 
basically what we did is we took severe asthmatics. Now, these are the people that we always see in the emergency rooms or in, their, in our clinics coming back and back and back with the unquenchable asthma and high inflammation. And um, these patients have different types of inflammation. And one of those types is called type 2 inflammation. And it's something that relates to eosinophils, allergies, and all things that are brought upon them because they have high type 2 cytokine activity. So I'm going to stop the technical terms there. But basically, we can find out what they have as an inflammation pattern by looking at their biomarkers. Biomarkers such as the blood eosinophil count, which is done on the full blood count in the, in the little blood test tube, and fractional exhaled nitric oxide, pheno, which is a small handheld device, takes one minute to measure, and you have the result immediately at the bedside. Now, historically, we've, and we, we do know that pheno means that you are sensitive to steroids, but we don't know, we didn't know what it would mean if you still have a high pheno despite every single proof of adherence given and shown to your doctor. So when we see a patient and they have a pheno of above 50, 50 is very high, but uh, it can go up to 300, which is extremely high, and the patient claims they're taking their inhalers, the reflex, the knee-jerk reflex is usually to say, you're not adherent, you're lying. But you don't say it that way, of course. Uh, in our study, we took these severe asthmatics, more, uh, 74 patients, and we whacked them with a lot of steroids twice the dose of which is considered a high dose of nailed corticosteroid, and we monitored their intake, and we were absolutely certain they were taking their inhaled steroids because we monitored them and they saw the nurses, and if they didn't have a suppression of the pheno, well, we gave them more steroids in an injection in the buttock. So no, 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 um, no doubt there, they were taking the steroids. And what we found is when they have high numbers, high pheno numbers, that correlates with a lot of stuff in, the, in, what's ha what, in what's happening in the airways, in the sputum. It correlates with type 2 cytokines, chemokines, alarmins, and sputum eosinophils in the airway. Conversely, we looked at blood eosinophils, which are the effector cells for asthma inflammation, and those if blood eosinophils correlated only with serum IL-5 in the blood. So the pool of effector cells and IL-5 is reflected by the blood eosinophil count. And pheno reflects the magnet, the way the, air, the airway is activated and signaling to effector cells in the body to say, come here, there is damage to be done. And the damage is done by those little bombs, the isnophils. So what, that's what we found in that first poll of study, that pheno and blood isnophils provide complementary information on distinct components and compartments of um, the, immune, the immunity and the asthma. So phenone blood isnophils are useful even in patients that are highly adherent and still have high numbers. Now, what that brought us to is to investigate how those biomarkers, phenone blood isnophils, are, are, were predictive of asthma attacks in the placebo arms of randomized control trials, which is the basis for the Oracle prototype. Now, as a context, you all know that in our cardio cardiovascular colleagues are extremely good at hammering the message that blood pressure and cholesterol need to be treated because they relate to a high risk of, of heart attacks. Well, we, we speculated that the airway equivalent of high blood pressure and cholesterol is high pheno and high blood isnophils. So on that basis, we, we wanted to chart out the risk of asthma attacks by centering our attention on these biomarkers. Why? Why is it important? Because most important risk factors for asthma attacks are highly uh, are, are unmodifiable, are difficult to modify. What I'm trying to say is we're fatalistic often enough. We're saying, you wheeze, you had an asthma attack last year, well, you're probably going to have another asthma attack this year, which is quite sad. So what we wanted to do is center our attention on blood isnophils and pheno, because those two biomarkers we can modify, we can treat, of course, with type 2 targeted therapies, such as inhaled corticosteroids and mild asthma, higher dose inhaled corticosteroids and moderate to severe asthma, and then type 2 targeting biologics and severe asthma. So the, the MABs of this world, mepolizumab, benorizumab, restlizumab, dupilumab, um, omalizumab, even dupilumab. So those MABs are very good at, at removing the excess risk of asthma attacks. So we investigated 3,000 patients across the spectrum of asthma severities from mild, moderate to severe asthma that were randomized to the control arm of a randomized control trial. And we... Um, 
we looked at how the baseline biomarkers in what predicted the number of asthma attacks in the year upcoming. And we found that between very type 2 low patients, type 2 low being a pheno below 25 and a blood is in account below 0.5, uh, between, below 0.15, sorry. So pheno below 25, blood is in account below 0.15, compared to high, very high patients. So blood is in the account above 0.3 and pheno above 50. There was a five-fold increase of asthma attacks. Now, what's important there is to say that that five-fold increase is steady across the severity. So as with blood pressure and cholesterol, the relative risk of asthma attacks with biomarkers is equal across spe the spectrum of risks. But when you have a higher absolute risk, so Gina step five, asthma attack in the last year, patient who went to the ICU last year and has low lung function, for example, in that spectrum, the, the magnitude, the five-fold magnitude equates to a very higher, uh, higher absolute risk of asthma attacks. So, uh, so in, in such a manner that the patients with low biomarkers, pheno below 25, blood is account below 0.15, with all those other risk factors would have three attacks in the next four years. But those that had very high biomarkers with the same clinical profile had, th had three attacks in the next year. So 0.75 versus 2.6. So uh, a very big difference. And the important thing that we also showed in a poster at the BTS is that the excess risk, that difference between 2.6 and 0.75 is shaved, is removed, is quantified by Oracle, what we can do to help that patient. So a patient with high biomarkers will improve with type 2 targeted therapies. And a patient with low biomarkers, well, that one will little or not improve with more steroids or more biologics. And we should be exploring alternate um, alternate uh, scenarios. And we made an app with that, which is currently in a draft version. But at the ATS, we hope to present a more definite version, which is um, oraclescore.com. So if you look at that up. And this is ongoing work we're doing. So it's a prototype, the Oracle risk scale. It's not necessarily ready for uh, clinical practice now. It can guide discussions, though, but not, not as a real um, quantified and a robust tool. And we hope to, to derive it with individual participants' data. And within the next five years, we'll have our own Framingham scale uh, score, you know, the score chart for cardiovascular disease. We'll have that in asthma as well, we hope. And we hope this provides a framework for patients and doctors to discuss and say, what's going to happen to you if we don't do anything today? And last but not least, I just want to say all this work we've done, We've done it because we feel we feel we've been we've been a bit lax in our approach in asthma, and we've been using symptoms a lot. Do you wheeze? That question is in, in, important, but it doesn't correlate to anything about treatment response. And we think that bringing objective monitoring to the asthma realm is uh, very important to um, to uh, make better decisions. Thank you. Lovely, Simon. Thank you. A couple of questions, actually. Could the Oracle scoring system be useful in acute exacerbations of asthma? Does it, you know, does it, does it relate at all to that about um, the severity of each exacerbation? That's a really good question. So we do know that people with type 2 inflammatory biomarkers that are high respond more to anti-inflammatory therapy, but we don't know how that relates to acute asthma. We know that, again, in acute asthma, pheno and blood isnophils relate to high inflammation via airway and systemic compartments. But we don't know how this can guide treatment. And that's something that we we're setting up a research program at the moment in Sherbrooke, Canada. We're looking for fellows, so do write to me, s.qr.usherbrooke.ca. But yeah, so we are setting that up, and that is an, an unmet need to see how we can use these biomarkers in acute asthma. At the moment, Oracle is not in that perspective. It's in a chronic perspective. So in a patient that would be randomized to a trial today, you can say, well, this would happen if you were in the placebo arm. So let's do something else than that. Let's give you something or not. Let's just say you, you, your risk is not too bad. So let's reassure you and let's move on with other therapies than, than the disastrous side effects of steroids. Brilliant. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, Bernabé. Thank you all. <laughs> Have a great BTS. Brilliant. Next up, we have Dr. Ryan Robinson from Liverpool. An old colleague and friend. So, um, Ryan, I think you, you know, you're involved in an recy inhaler recycling project, which you're going to tell us about and a few other key points from that session. That's right. So myself and my colleagues uh, did a project looking at inhaler recycling. Basically, we noticed that there was a real lack of options available. But to give you a bit of background in this, around 65 million inhalers prescribed in the UK uh, alone. And inhalers on their own contribute about 3.1% of all NHS emissions. 
And to give you a bit of perspective on that, the NHS emissions are the equivalent of a country the size of Croatia. So the NHS set some some goals to try and make the health service more sustainable and achieve net zero by 2040. And as inhalers contribute 3.1% of that, uh, you know, that's not a small issue. It's, it's quite a big, big problem. If inhalers aren't disposed of appropriately, they can release the propellants which are left inside them. And that can contribute to the greenhouse effect and global warming. So we wanted to see what was available nationally and uh, regionally and then t- get some patient perspectives and look into why it's not happening in our area or why it is happening. Uh, so it's basically two parts to this. So we looked at interviewing pharmacies uh, to see what's available and we looked at patients uh, as well. So we identified that there's only really one recycling scheme taking uh, place in the UK and that's via Tiva One. But the pharmacy uptake is limited, particularly in our area, and they're not taking on any new pharmacies. There is a really interesting pilot t- taking place in Leicester Uh, called the Take Air uh, pilot, and they're handing out um, envelopes with the inhalers so they can actually post them back. That's only in the Leicester area, though, and that's via Chiesi. So we got 14 responses from pharmacies and we got 36 responses from patients with asthma. Um, So I'll just talk you through the pharmacy results first. So they they told us that they were dispensing an average of around 97 inhalers, but they actually only get about nine back per month uh, for safe disposal. Most of them did say they accept them for safe disposal, but they don't accept them back for recycling. And that was fairly uniform across all the pharmacies. There was no real awareness of any local recycling initiatives uh, or national um, recycling initiatives either. In fact, some of the pharmacies thought they were recycling, but when we clarified this a bit further via their superintendent pharmacies, pharmacists, there actually wasn't there anything available. When we talked to the patients with asthma, the majority, so 20 out of the 36, were putting their inhalers into the household waste or recycling, household recycling. And actually, they don't get recycled. They'll end up in landfill that way. Only four out of the 36 were returning them to a pharmacy. And there was really poor awareness of what you should do when you finish your inhaler. However, 97% did say that given the option, they would what they want to recycle inhalers. So there is a, a real uh, d- there is demand uh, out there for this. To conclude, I'd say there's a lack of available recycling services regionally and nationally. And that needs to be addressed if we're going to meet these uh, ambitious targets that the NHS has set. There is a real willingness to participate in this scheme if it was available, but at the moment there's there's nothing really available for people to use. From our point of view as clinicians, I think we should be telling patients as we prescribe the inhaler, look, when you finish this inhaler, make sure you drop it off at your pharmacy and then they can dispose of it safely. And that, that's the sort of minimum thing that we can do to prevent the uh, waste gases from entering the uh, atmosphere. To go into the um, take air pilot that's happening happening in, in Leicester so that yeah. is really interesting they're providing envelopes that they send the inhalers back uh, and then they're disposed of and actually nothing ends up in landfill if you do it like that's that that's amazing they're really high quality plastic and aluminium canisters yeah. and actually even using some of the gas the waste gas they're using it to power things like uh, air conditioning but the thing is that it's a small pilot and I think they're going to be reporting back in about March next year hopefully that will put some pressure on a national level to try and develop something similar uh, elsewhere. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, we could, hey, let's, let's, let's watch this space. So in terms of other interesting projects I heard about in the same session, there was a really interesting one uh, about the outcomes of people with learning disabilities uh, in COVID. So I didn't realise this, but people with learning disabilities have a six, are six times more likely to die from COVID-19. Um, and in this particular study, they uh, followed up people with learning difficult disabilities as they were admitted to ITU. And actually, they found that they had a 93% survival rate. And, uh, you know, that anecdotally, I've seen a lot of hesitancy from critical care colleagues, or at, least, at least when considering people with uh, learning uh, disabilities. But I think it's important to remember that they can have really good outcomes, uh, just like anybody else. Wow, brilliant. What a collection of awesome speakers. So much great info, some real practice changing facts I think were coming out there um, and plenty of lung food for thought. Uh, Wow, Katia, what did you think? Was that? Yeah, incredible. I feel like I've learned so much. Um, Barney, what are your key take homes from this selection then? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, How about about we do a couple each? I mean, I'll I'll go first and you can go, let's see. Um, I thought, look, I thought there's loads of really interesting stuff. I mean, for me, I really enjoyed uh, Lorcan, the prof- professor, 
Professor McGarvey's talk on uh, cough and chronic cough. I think this is a it's something I'm working in because I'm doing research in this area. And it was great to hear him talk so passionately about it. It was great to see at the BTS and see so much interest about it. And, you know, this high knowledge of that these new medications coming out, the burden it's causing on the population. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, I, th I totally agree. One of my favorite take homes has got to be um, the fact that we need to start using COPD exacerbations as a time to really intervene and improve the care we're giving to our patients with COPD. And both Professor Hurst and Professor Kuyad um, use the analogy of a COPD exacerbation being similar to um, acute coronary syndrome. And I think having that in your head when you're seeing a patient with exacerbation is going to be really, really helpful going forward. Yeah, no, I think that's great, isn't it? I think um, this concept, yeah, every time they have an exacerbation, they have a drop in lung function, and most of them don't recover that lung function, even though, even after a long period of time. And knowing that and seeing these patients coming in and in is, is really key. Brilliant. Um, the other thing I, I liked, I had, yeah, Professor Koya, he was, he was a great talker on the BTS and in the, in the podcast. And I think it is interesting just thinking about this idea of using the eosinophil count and the pheno is something we're kind of aware of, but actually putting it into practice and able to sort of stratify or um, work out the severity of the asthma, um, I thought would be really useful. And again, I think that could be a really useful tool, this Oracle scoring system, which we hopefully will be coming, coming to a hospital near you soon. Yeah, I thought that was great as well. And then I think my final take home point has got to be something that is very close to my heart, which is that we should really be telling all our patients to take inhalers back to pharmacies. And from my own experience, really, most patients have no idea um, that they need to do this. And they, but they do think they're doing the right thing by recycling them at home. So there just needs to be a massive education campaign um, in that point, in that respect. I thought Ryan talked about that really well. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I think and that's, that's something I definitely need to do. And I think I, I'm not sure if I've ever actually done that, said to the patient, you should really need to take this back to the pharmacy when you finish. So I think that's really useful. Brilliant, Katia. Wow. Loads for us to learn. I really hope the listeners are picking up loads of practice changing points as well. And um, hopefully they'll be listening out for part two, which will be released, I think, at the same time. We'll see. <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Barney. Cheers, Katia. See you soon. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Katia Florman. Thanks to all our amazing speakers and the awesome organisers at the BTS. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, and promotion stars, Isabella Nabby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.